Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, it seems that everyone these days wants to talk about Facebook, uh, including one of the company's co-founders, Chris Hughes, who uh, wrote a uh, pretty long opinion piece for the New York Times recently, arguing both that the company should be broken up and that there should be some fairly strict regulations placed on how it operates. Uh, I wrote a long response on TechDirt disagreeing with much of the Hughes piece, uh, mainly pointing out uh, two key things that I thought, first of which being that it didn't seem clear to me how breaking up the company solved any of the actual harms that he discussed, um, some of which I'm not sure are actually harms that are caused by Facebook. Uh, and then secondly, that the regulations he proposed were most likely unconstitutional. Uh, but, you know, besides that, <laughs> still, the article generated plenty of discussion, uh, including a short uh, debate on Twitter among two former podcast guests, uh, who both of whom I greatly admire and respect, uh, and that is uh, David Kay, who's the UN's Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and also a law professor at UC Irvine, and also Mike Godwin, uh, who hopefully you know who he is, uh, but uh, the coiner of Godwin's Law, uh, an internet lawyer involved in many issues related to the internet and internet governance over the past couple decades, and currently senior fellow at the R Street Institute, and recently elected to the Board of Trustees at the Internet Society. Um, the discussion between the two of them focused on one aspect of Hughes's, again, very long piece, where he notes that if his plan was followed that, uh, in quotes, uh, the biggest winners would be the American people. And uh, David took some issue with that statement, reminding everyone that Facebook is a global company with more users outside the U.S. than inside, and worrying that if the focus is just on what's best for Americans, uh, it might lead to greater problems elsewhere. So there's a lot to discuss on, on this general topic of what to do, if anything, about Facebook. Uh, but let's start here. So, David, what was your specific concern about that part of, of Hughes's opinion piece? Yeah. Mike, thanks for having me. Sure. I, you know, uh, the piece, as you said, you know, raises a whole, you just a whole host of, of issues and concerns. Um, and, and, you know, my point was really not so much about whether Chris Hughes is right that breakup is the right uh, tool to deal with the kinds of harms that he identifies. My my issue is really it's, it's beyond uh, Chris Hughes in a way, and it's you know the nature of our discussions in the United States around the platforms often doesn't take into account the global nature of the platforms. I mean, we we pay lip service to the fact that that they're global, but you know I kind of feel that. You know, the way Colin Powell talked about Iraq and the pottery barn <laughs> rule, you know, you break it, right. you own it. I feel like there's a you built it, you own it element here. And that part of our discussion around policies and regulations to deal with, with all of the, the major platforms has to take into account how global they've become. And that, you know, things that we do in the United States to regulate them will have a major or could have a major impact on users and publics outside the United States. And 
I, I was really just commenting on that and, and trying to inject that into part of the, the policy debate here. Yeah. And, and so, Mike, what, what, what was your concern about, uh, about that? Well, so I, you know, I have to start out by saying I don't disagree with uh, David one iota about uh, uh, the recognition, about the need to recognize that these are international issues about international platforms with international impact. And it would be uh, uh, at the very least irresponsible to ignore uh, the fact that, you know, what we are doing uh, when we are regulating these platforms has or, or choosing not to regulate these platforms has uh, international consequences. I, and I, I think that, and, and differential consequences, it may affect some populations more or less than others. That That's really important to always be aware of. But I think that the way I read, and I have many criticisms of uh, Chris Hughes's uh, very long uh, uh, op-ed as well, but I, I felt that in some sense, the thing that he did right was to try to pitch to the American policymakers who would be responsible for, you know, whatever regulatory reforms he's proposing uh, specifically and, and in a language that those policymakers typically understand uh, pretty well. So if you look at the discussion in context, you know, he's obviously talking to Congress or maybe you know, to the FTC uh, mm -hmm. or the Department of Justice. It's very, the arguments he's framing are meant to be very specific. So when he says uh, the biggest winners uh, would be the American people, it's in the context of what would be American law reform, which might be uh, some antitrust action from the courts or some congressional intervention. And and I know from experience, uh, you know, as a person who raises international concerns from time to time, that if you go to Congress and say, we're, you know, we owe this to the world or we owe this to, you know, we need to get this right for, uh, you know, Belarus or, or, or Myanmar or Pakistan or whatever, you know, those arguments are compelling, you know, sometimes, uh, but they're not always the way to get leverage, especially in a Congress uh, as uh, dysfunctional and distractible as, as we have now. <laughs> uh, so that uh, focusing on the fact that, for example, the breakup of Standard Oil uh, made money for all its stockholders and also created competition for consumers, that is an argument that actually has some traction. And my only... Uh, a pushback on David's comment really centers on that idea, which is that you have to focus on the articles that will get traction with the decision makers that you want to reach. Yeah, and I, I mean, for my part, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I, I, and I get that, you know, part of what Chris Hughes, I think, is trying to do is, um, or I imagine that he's trying to do is to, uh, to change the conversation in Washington. And, and I, I agree. I mean, I agree with great regret <laughs> that, you know, um, uh, sort of arguments that focus on uh, impact on non-Americans, impact outside our borders, are unlikely to resonate uh, in, in Congress. So I, so I, I get that part. And I guess, and, and you know, part of, you know, part of the, the function of Twitter is to heighten disagreement where there <laughs> isn't really much disagreement, right? And so I, I, I'm guessing that, that Mike and I agree on a lot of this stuff. 
Um, I mean, and I'm basing that on what I've read of Mike over many years. But but I also think that as this idea moves forward, we're going to have to figure out ways to integrate. At least I feel that we're going to need to figure out ways to integrate the global impact on any policy choices we make. I mean, I think that you know it's clear that governments around the world are are moving towards regulating the platforms you know in their own jurisdictions, and and that's something we could talk a little bit about as well. But apart from European regulation, American regulation is where you know the the greatest global impact will hit and. And I mean, I'd I'd like to to sort of figure out because I have no answer on this. Um, I'd like to figure out how we can inject into our own domestic debate in the United States some thinking about the relevance of of um, you know the impact on on Belarus or Myanmar or any other place. Yeah, and I, I think it is you know, especially I mean, going back to the very beginning of of TechTrade itself, like. Two decades ago, I mean, one of the most common topics we had was just sort of like the the jurisdiction question of the internet, right? Because it is this sort of global platform, and rules in one place can can have huge impact elsewhere, and and we see that already, right? I mean, you know, in in copyright, you know, the US DMCA seems to sort of rule globally, and now in in privacy, for now at least, the GDPR in the EU seems to rule globally, um, just by the nature of of how it's happened. So so any of these rules have much broader impact. And so I think so so correct me if I'm wrong, but that's sort of the the debate that that you know that is happening here where, you know, Mike, you're saying very correctly, the only way Congress is going to pay attention or 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 you know whatever federal agency is going to pay attention is if we're talking about the the impact on on American people. But David, your concern is that when we just focus on on the American people, um, that can lead to problems elsewhere because the law is going to have a much much broader impact. Is that an accurate yeah. summary? Yeah, I think. That, I mean, that's that's a good articulation of where where I'm coming at from this. And I and uh, you know honestly, you know Mike Godwin has just you know decades of experience in in working on these issues in Washington as well. And I'd be interested in in understanding a little bit how these debates and how the the global side of the platform's role and responsibility can actually be integrated into some of this discussion you know without mucking around with the core problem which is getting you know getting policymakers in a dysfunctional environment to do anything about this in the first place well you know it's funny but the decades of experience that i have are, are maybe not terribly useful because <laughs> Because uh, Congress, I, because and partly it's because the the opportunity or the or the risks of of global norm setting uh, were relatively low until uh, comparatively recently. So that uh, when the United States was grappling uh, with a lot of internet policy and law issues uh, at the start of Tector, you know, twenty years ago. Uh, they, you know, we knew uh, in the United States that we were, you know, the first, uh, the first developed nation that was really beginning to grapple comprehensively with some real hot button issues that had to do with, uh, certainly with copyright and with uh, a th- a threatening or dangerous speech and with uh, pornography or, or, or uh, other kinds of uh, offensive speech. Uh, 
and, and and the focus, and I can tell you as someone who was there, the focus was, you know, we had our eye, we had one eye on the international environment because we knew there were jurisdiction problems that we were going to have to cope with sooner or later. But we we focused on the United States legal framework because we knew we had to get it right at home first so that we at least knew what principles we were standing for if we were going to talk about Internet regulation and law in the international environment. And I think we got, you know, it was not an unbroken string of victories by any means, but we did get a lot of uh, good good frameworks in place, including uh, uh, DMCA uh, provision, certain DMCA provisions, and certainly Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We got most, of, we got stuff in place that created an environment for a lot of very uh, creative uh, and, and profitable work in, in building uh, the modern internet and modern internet services. But uh, I think that uh, the big trigger, and I'm sure uh, David disagrees, I mean, I'm sure David agrees, pardon me, he, he should feel free to disagree, <laughs> uh, is that uh, when the European Union began to really tackle in a comprehensive way uh, certain uh, 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 internet-related public policy issues, including uh, copyright and including privacy, uh, you know, that was a real game-changer. And the United States, uh, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, was caught flat-footed trying to figure out how to respond mm -hmm. uh, 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 to an environment in which they don't just sort of say, this is how we do things around here on the internet and expect everybody to sort of line up. Um, and uh, and so that's where we are now. We're still, you know, we've had a shakeup because uh, because the EU has been very effective in in being a counterweight to United States approach to certain issues. And and American law, uh, uh, legislators and policymakers, I think, really haven't wrapped their minds around it. So so to come back to my decades of experience and whether they're useful or not. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how to sell. I don't yet know how to sell members of Congress uh, on the need to uh, keep their eye on the international environment, except to say, you know, you do have to pay attention to this stuff, which I do say from time to time. Yeah, I mean, is it a situation where just because the EU has been so active, like that is that is the opportunity to get to get U.S. lawmakers to pay attention to it? So I think the way it has played out has been that companies with a global footprint, and here obviously we have to include Facebook and, and Google and, and also hardware makers like Apple, uh, have actually come to Congress and say, look, you know, we've got these rules, you know, that we have to obey in the international environment. And whatever you do, you can't, uh, you know, you can't demand something of us that's too different from what we're demanded to do in the international environment. And, uh, and, and, and we also would like to have relatively friction-free international commerce. So it would be nice if the U.S. rules, whatever they are, uh, have some kind of harmony with the international legal and regulatory environment. So, so the way it plays out when Congress does begin to learn of this is often the companies as stakeholders come to come to government and say, uh, you know, this is the lay of the land now, and, and, and these are the constraints we all have to work under. I mean, some of that, it, it reminds me of, I mean, there were all these discussions about 
you know, a lot of uh, internet law in the sort of, well, not just internet law, but like IP law in particular in the, in the nineties uh, and early two thousands, that was sort of um, uh, done through international uh, <laughs> ways. I mean, the DMCA is actually a good example of this that I've used before where, you know, there was this attempt to, to get a DMCA like law passed through Congress originally and Congress didn't do it. And so um, the people who were pushing it, you know, ran to Geneva and and got uh, you know a, a trade agreement signed that effectively forced the U.S. to 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 put in place the DMCA. Um, and so you know, I've had concerns over the years about that process, sort of like you know, sort of laundering uh, regulations through trade agreements. Um, and so, are we discussing the same sort of thing here, or is this something different? So I, I don't mean to talk too much of this, but I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, interesting. Yeah, so, so absolutely uh, there is policy laundering that happens. Uh, uh, and, and, and the interesting case, one of the most interesting cases to me are the cybercrime treaty is the, is, the, mm -hmm. is the, I guess, the Budapest Convention is now called. But the cybercrime treaty... Uh, you know, it was a Council of Europe uh, agreement dr officially drafted by the Council of Europe. Uh, and you, as you know, the United States, as you might guess, is not a member of the Council of Europe. <laughs> and yet uh, uh, it was precisely uh, United States drafted uh, a, a prototype document that became uh, the Budapest Convention. And it included uh, copyright and child pornography and computer crime provisions that are just exactly on the punch list of uh, DOJ's, uh, you know, cybercrime uh, 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 constituents. So, so that was kind of a weird thing. And, and the process, as I think you allude to, Mike, is that uh, you you have you have policy that you can't quite get done in Congress, and then you go pitch it in international tribunals, including some you may not be a member of if you're in the United States. And then you get a kind of an international uh, consensus. Uh, uh, and then you come back to the United States and say, well, you know, now we have to implement this. And then, and then that process, the treaty process, goes to the Senate, you know, for advice and basically gets uh, uh, voted up and down, voted up or down, and then you have to implement. Typically gets voted approved unless it has to do with uh, uh, ecological concerns and then you never know how that's going to turn out. Uh, I think that's, I mean, that's a really good example, the, the cyber crimes convention. I mean, one of the things that seems to me pretty interesting right now is that at least when we're talking about content regulatory issues, the United States isn't playing much of, in that at all. And, and so, you know, we kind of see it flipped around. And, and in a way, you know, Mike, you mentioned GDPR as kind of the, the flip side of DMCA in the sense of, you know, European privacy regulation having a global impact. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, as we, we look at global regulation, and one of, the, one of the reasons why I think U.S. legislators should be somewhat concerned is that so much of the discussion around content regulation, so not, not content moderation by the companies, but actual regulation by governments, you know, most of that, you know, real, um, the real conversations among policymakers is happening, you know, in Brussels and in European capitals, and then, you know, to a certain extent in, in places around the world that, 
you know, might be more or less um, authoritarian friendly. But, but the, the, I think one of the things that I don't think uh, Washington, and by Washington, I, I really do mean, you know, people in Congress or even in the executive branch, that they, they haven't necessarily got their heads around. Uh, and I think this, this may be true for the companies as well, is that, you know, the regulatory momentum is in Europe. And because these are companies that operate at scale, the choices that they might be forced to make or incentivized to make in Europe, uh, you know, over time could have a very strong influence on on how those companies work worldwide and, you know, work in the United States. So, you know, in a way, we've seen a, a flip of, um, you know, the discussion. It's It's not just about you know, what American regulation would do. And, we, you know, we're starting with the Chris Hughes mm-hmm. op-ed, and who knows if that will even go anywhere. Um, but, but at the moment, I think the truth is that most of our focus when it comes to content should be, should be on Europe and, and um, you know, the, the steps that are being taken, you know, basically as we speak around some big content kinds of issues. Yeah. And, and, there, and there are a few different ones there, right? And, and we've had discussions on this podcast before about like um, the terrorist regulation. Um, and then, you know, there are different different local laws and, and the UK has, has pushed for, for one and Germany has their law. And then most recently, there's been a lot of discussion also about France. Um, and so this is a good segue. <laughs> um, so, you know, France sort of put together this process to try and figure out, you know, how it was going to regulate content, you know, online content. Um, and it's a process where they, they appear to have you know, Facebook is somehow involved in the process. Um, it's a little murky how that is. And they just recently came out with this sort of, um, it's sort of a recommendation. It's, it's, it's kind of vague. Um, but there, there are some recommendations there and a lot of them, um, you know, you know, that I thought were at at least, um, somewhat better than, than what a lot of other places have been doing. Um, in that it, it does recognize and does state that like freedom of expression is actually an important consideration here, though it kind of frames it as, you know, it has to be balanced against other things. Um, and, and a lot of the, the plan there is, is sort of pushing for greater transparency in terms of how Facebook handles these things. Um, and, and Facebook has somewhat, uh, embrace this. And, you know, I guess since they're a part of the process, that's not that surprising. And also because if they push back against it, everyone probably just scream at them. <laughs> um, so, so what do you think of, of like what's happening in France, for example? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would just start by like, just to, to tie it back to the first part of the conversation, Yeah, you know, this, this is, this might be one of the hooks to get people on the Hill, for example, uh, to be focusing on the international, I mean, because this, this is, you know, the potential for real concrete regulation of content that, that could impact Americans. Um, but anyway, I mean, looking at, at the French, I haven't read the, the whole proposal. I read the, the introduction to it. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to, um, I've talked to one of the, the people who's been involved in putting it together. You know, it, it seems on the surface to be, you know, quite different from you know, the German law, the NetsDG, the terrorist content regulation or directive that's coming out of Brussels and, and, and even the, the UK's white paper on this that, that they released about a month ago. Yeah. I mean, it seems that what they're interested in doing is, 
is pushing for a, a kind of collaborative approach that involves, I think, two things, that, at least one of the things that, that you mentioned. One is, you know, much more transparency about what the, what the companies are doing so that, you know, government and users have a sense of, um, you know, ability to evaluate things that, that the companies are doing. But the second part of it, which I think is, you know, perhaps the more interesting and the one where we're really going to need to drill down into at some point is um, the role that public institutions might play in providing some oversight um, for, for content decisions made by the companies. It seems like what they are you know, proposing is basically having some kind of either independent um, auditor, some independent agency, or even potentially the courts playing some role in evaluating the, the um, you know, the steps that the companies take in terms of assessing what's legitimate and what's not on the platforms, or even what's lawful and what's not unlawful on the platforms. And, you know, if that's, if that's actually um, an accurate reading of what, what the French are proposing here, or at least what this one body in France is proposing, I think that's a big switch from NetsDG, which basically says, here's the law, we want you uh, you know, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter to, um, to make evaluations about that law, you know, go to it. Um, this would be something different than that. Um, and at the same time, it seems like it would be um, a, a something that, that moves away from the stridency that Emmanuel Macron, that President Macron has taken when it comes to different kinds of, you know, quote-unquote harmful speech um, you know, over the last couple of years, because it does seem like it's something that's rooted in more of a, a kind of public law and um, public evaluation process rather than one that, you know, like the terrorist content directive that Macron, I think, supports very strongly is mainly about uh, putting pressure on the companies. If, if that's true, that's a big, that's a big switch from, from the past. Yeah, and and so and and I think David has really hit on something that I th think is uh, positive about the French proposal, and I, I I qualify that by saying I agree with uh, David's uh, appraisal of it. Is you know it's not entirely it's not all the details are clearly not worked out. Yeah, and and uh, and there's enough ambiguity so that some questions could be decided either badly or well, and it's not clear how how those uh, things will go. But I think that uh, what you do see is, uh, is uh, you know, David called it collaborative. I would call it, uh, I, th I see something that looks suspiciously like multi-stakeholderism. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, they're really talking about engaging with civil society and transparency and public discussion of how the decisions are made and what the policy should be. I love all that uh, because when multi-stakeholderism works well, uh, it, it has that benefit of sort of pulling all the issues out in the open so that at least if you're going to make hard decisions, you know what they are and you, know, and you have a clearer idea about what their effects are going to be. That, those, are the, those are the parts of the French uh, proposal that I, I like. And, and, and it was interesting to me when Zuckerberg uh, did his uh, – uh, Washington Post op-ed uh, uh, several weeks ago uh, that he mentioned the French in particular 
and I and I said, oh, well, there must be something really big, <laughs> that the French, <laughs> you know, that the French are working on with Facebook, and this apparently is that project. Mm. Um, the, the, the French, but, just, I mean, just like a little footnote there is, you know, the French announced, I think, last October, November, that they were going to, I mean, the way it was, was translated was they were going to embed, <laughs> I mean, right. embed yeah. as if they were reporters going reporters, to war, right. you know, with, with Facebook. And I think what happened was, um, you know, the, this, this French commission essentially sent a lot of people to Facebook. They, they participated or at least got to observe some of the content policymaking and the content moderation. And, I, you know, my sense is that, you know, some of these people actually had experience working for uh, subsidiaries or the companies themselves in Europe. They, mm-hmm. were, they were willing to, um, to kind of, uh, you know, participate in this with open eyes and, and kind of open mind as to what the companies were doing. And, and it created, which I think is really important, it created a sense of, uh, of kind of, um, you know, uh, like we know you. Right. We right. Were engaged with you. And that it seems like that might have been uh, of some value here. I mean, it, it, that, if that's if that happens and we don't have much transparency about it, that can be really dangerous. But it seems to have served uh, some kind of positive purpose here. Anyway, that's just a footnote to what you were saying. Yeah, no. And I think that's right. I mean, that was the impression that I got. And I, I have uh, I, you know, I've I've been to a number of meetings that have certain you know, Chatham House rules restrictions, but I, you know, my impression is that that, that your characterization of the, that, you know, uh, of that collaborative process between, uh, you know, between uh, uh, representatives of France and Facebook has been fairly positive. Uh, that said, I mean, I think that the, uh, I think that the French recognize that, you know, you can have you, you can create the atmosphere of good feeling and co- cooperation, but ultimately you have to formalize whatever it is that you're going to do to create a regulatory balance that everybody can live with. And um, and and so I think that's the reason you're seeing produced in uh, this uh, initial proposal uh, uh, from the French some talk about uh, external you know tribunals or arbiters. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, and ways to deal with uh, content decisions. I think that stuff is important, and I've, I've I have thought that uh, Facebook's willingness to take on that, you know, that uh, you know, to subject itself to an independent arbitration process, whatever it is, I think it's quite positive. I think the worry that I have is that when I've talked to people who have drafted, uh, who've worked on this stuff, they have the idea that we can sort of limit the regulation to only the really large uh, companies. So, and my, my question is, how do you know, how do you know what those, how do you define who those companies are? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and the French regulation definitely does try and do that. It, uh, you know, it's not clear exactly how, but it is a recognized issue in the French proposal that it should really only target the largest social media platforms. And and then, and then my worry on that point is uh, if you, run a company like Facebook and you're invited to be, you know, the super yeah. large platform that is the regulated entity, you know, are you essentially cutting a deal, right. you, know, you know, where you become, you know, the infrastructure and, and get to print money all the rest of your life, <laughs> you know, uh, 
and what about what and what does this mean for competition and innovation and so on? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I worry about that a lot. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, I, I and I, you know, have to kind of plead guilty to some of that. You know, the in NetsDG, um, it basically answers that question by talking about revenue, right? So mm-hmm. and, and user base, basically. Um, but you know, there's there's all sorts of platforms that we could imagine, and and this is a dynamic space, obviously, uh, where we could imagine platforms that have you know few users. Or little revenue, maybe even negative <laughs> revenue, and yet have a huge impact on public institutions, and um, and and kind of raise the same kinds of concerns. So I, I think that's a, a really legitimate point to raise. I, I mean, just just as an example, uh, uh, an organization that that Mike is very familiar with is Wikipedia, right? Yeah, and and right. and that they have different issues, but it's one of the largest platforms on the, on on the internet, and yet. Um, you know, to put them under the same regulatory regime as a Facebook feels like it would be problematic, right? Yeah, yeah. it's at least that. It's at least yeah. that. You know, when I was, you know, we were concerned. I mean, some big part of my attention when I was general counsel at, at, for Wikipedia was, you know, how to lower our exposure uh, to various kinds of international initiatives. And, and, and there were lots of different strategies that I came up with or promoted to do that. But I think that so. But I think that the, you know, it's actually a subtler bra. I mean, typically when you raise the Wikipedia issue, some people say, well, we can make an exception for nonprofits, uh, you know, for charities, and Wikipedia is a charity, so they're done. We've got a categorical exception. But the difficulty, I think, is is this, which is that Wikipedia, by its nature, relies on external information sources. You know, to document, to build an encyclopedia article, you link to other articles and publications that may be affected by regulations that you're not, you if you're Wikipedia, that you're not affected by, so that uh, uh, indirectly uh, the kind of richness of shared, you know, cultural information, which is what Wikipedia is all about, may be affected by uh, regulations that impact more directly other organs of freedom of expression and, free, and freedom of the press. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think sorry. Part part of the point is just the fact that like there are so many different kinds of platforms and different styles and sort of any sort of one size fits all rules is going to have fairly wide impact and much of which I don't think anyone could could you know conceivably predict. I think that's that's right. And um, and so you know when we think about that that I mean I think that point is is absolutely correct, especially in North America and Europe. You know, there are other places where some of the platforms have just enormous impact, where they basically are the Internet. And, you know, Facebook Basics has been mm-hmm. a culprit in, in kind of moving that in that direction. I, you know, one thing that I just, you know, want to want to say, because this, this conversation has kind of crystallized some of this for me. You know, we basically right now have, it seems like, three um, kinds of European models of, of speech regulation online that, that are moving forward. I mean, one is the NetsDG model, which is here's government law companies, you go and adjudicate. Then you have, um, you know, you have this white paper in the UK, which isn't, it's not even proposing concrete legislation yet, but it proposes a framework and it talks about both illegal content and, um, you know, basically uh, harmful content that isn't illegal. And yet, 
it wants the companies to uh, to regulate that kind of content as well. That's going to be, if that tries to move to, uh, or if, if legislators in the UK try to move that to, to you know, real legislation, that's going to be really problematic. And then you have this this third model in in France, which I think, as Mike rightly points out, it's it's a kind of you know creeping multi-stakeholderism, which you know hopefully that's that's the direction it heads. But I think this is this is a really important space for us to be watching because um, I think it's it's possible that we'll have three different kinds of regulation over time that that kind of coexist in different parts of Europe, or we could have one of these. Um, kind of dominating. And, you know, up until now, I thought that the NetsDG model was the one that was uh, sort of taking taking some hold across Europe um, and, and in places like, you know, Singapore and, and Australia and elsewhere. But but maybe not. I mean, maybe maybe one of these other models and, and you know, in particular, the French model, maybe that will prove attractive. But it's we're, we're definitely in a moment where um, where there's a lot of activity and dynamism, in, in, particularly in European space. And <coughs> just to end that thought, look, you know, where's the U.S. in all of this? We're not a part of this debate really at all. Yeah. Um, other than making noises. But yeah, but it, it's not really, <laughs> not yeah. really having much of an impact. Well, the, the, you know, in the U, at least when it comes to content specifically and not, not you know, in, in kind of the Chris Hughes... Or um, you know the other, you know the focus on on breakup and competition. But at least when it comes to you know purely content policy, um, you know it's just it's highly politicized uh, yeah. right now in the U.S. Yeah, almost entirely politicized. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so one of the things, and this may be a good way to segue into the fact that we've got a couple of books uh, that we need. <laughs> Thank to you, Mike. <laughs> yes. Sure. Uh, so, so uh, what you know, the fact that it's possible for governments to engage in uh, indirect control over uh, over uh, internet speech by you know doing some kinds of direct pressure on the companies or by delegating obligations to the companies that they couldn't do if they were tr- imposing it directly on citizens. Is, uh, is an interesting problem that I address uh, in a, a book that I've just written. Partly, uh, partly I wrote it on uh, Tech Dirt, um, which is the splinters of our discontent. And I talked about different models for thinking about uh, the government, you know, uh, the fact that we have multiple stakeholders or groups of stakeholders, including the companies themselves, the governments, and then individual uh, speakers, and then and and the press and media organizations, all as part of a different triangle. Uh, in, in the United States, we typically think of uh, speech issues as being, you know, uh, speakers or publishers against the government. In Europe, it's quite often uh, it certainly can be that, but it also is uh, a ton. Uh, regulation of companies, what are companies, you know, what is, are companies overreaching in terms of what they say or what they do with private information and so on. And in fact, the ecosystem that we live in now is more complex than these kind of binary paradigms uh, would suggest. So that's sort of, that's a big chunk of what I write about. And then I think David wants to talk about his book a little bit. (laughs) I think our books will kind of speak to each other, to be honest. (laughs) 
we should get them together, you know, like a, right. I'll be the, the Yenta. So I, um, right. so I, I, my book is, it's a short book and it's about, um, it's a really, it's really about how do we answer the, what I think of as the core question, which is who decides, like who's, who do, who decides the rules, who should be in charge. And um, in my book, I, I kind of lay out both the kind of bureaucratic and, and essentially governing nature of the platforms today and um and then lay out how how governments are are pushing back and and my you know i end up with proposals that are probably fairly similar to yours mike which are you know focused on you know multi-stakeholder approaches but also on you know non-viewpoint discrimination approaches so approaches that get us to you know more transparency um and 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 forms of accountability Without putting government in the in the in the place of actually deciding this this content is okay and this content is not, which I think is is extraordinarily extraordinarily dangerous, but is also the place where you know much of the legislation in Europe has been has been heading. And um, what are the names of both of these books, and where can they be found? Mm-hmm. My, mine is called. Oh, mine is called. Oh. You go first. You go first. <laughs> I did actually said the title a minute ago, so you say your title. Okay, mine is called. I just, I just want to reinforce it. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I cut you off there. Go ahead. Say. No, go it's ahead. okay. Um, mine's called Speech Police: The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet. It's uh, it's published by uh, Columbia Global Reports, which is this imprint that published Tim Wu's book uh, mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago on uh, on competition. And, um, you know, they do short books, kind of a series. It's, it was really a fun process, to be honest. All right. And, and, and my book, my book is called The Splinters of Our Discontent. Uh, and it's about, uh, and its subtitle is uh, How to Fix Social Media and Democracy Without Breaking Them. There we go. And, and people can find that. Can they find both of those on Amazon? Because that's where everybody looks. But just checking. Yeah, my, Mine's on Amazon yeah. as of this week. So. Yeah, I you know I, I really like that subtitle, Mike, because I think um, and, and this is at, at a kind of very high level. I mean, this isn't getting into the weeds of regulation, but you know, so much of the discussion is around you know the the dark dangers of the internet, and you know, without being you know too uh, you know naive about all this. I, I do think it's important for us to try to to bring back some of that regulatory discussion around how do we promote and protect, you know, the good stuff, the good stuff that's out there, um, while while dealing with some of those, you know, admitted harms and and, you know, when when the discussion is completely framed around terrorist content and hate speech and disinformation, it's just very hard to to kind of re restate. The point that there's actually some good purposes online as well, good purposes of the platforms. Yeah, David, you know what you're reminding me of is that the impulse behind uh, uh, the Marco Seville in uh, Brazil, the Marco Internet in Brazil, and the impulse behind uh, the Magna Carta for Philippines Internet Freedom was the cybercrime, uh, was the cybercrime initiatives, the, the very same. Budapest Convention that we mentioned earlier, 
and that's and the deal was uh, uh, legal scholars looked at the cybercrime laws that were going to talk about terroristic speech and criminal speech on the internet, and they said, why are we having these laws when we don't have affirmative statements about what it is about the internet that we want to protect? And uh, and that has been a really useful, I think, counterweight uh, in in uh, the international rights uh, dialogue or colloquy around the world. Uh, to say, well, what are our internet rights, and what should we, and shouldn't we be able to say, yeah. you know, what we need to say, and criticize government, and, and so on. And I think that uh, even though we have complaints uh, about how these platforms are misused, we have to constantly remind ourselves that uh, they're used to do things like publicize uh, uh, police abuse or. Uh, you know, uh, or or military overreach and other things that we yeah. really want to have records about. So that's all very important. Or sell books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or to sell a, books. Yeah, selling books <laughs> is important for Amazon and other vendors to sell. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it is. It is interesting because it does feel like. Yeah, in, in the focus on everything that is bad, and and we may have you know over focused on all of the good stuff from the internet for for you know much of its its early decades, um, but now we seem to have overcorrected, and we do seem to focus almost entirely just on on the bad stuff. And I do think it's important to to recognize there are you know both good and bad things happening online, and that you know uh, it's it is a mix, and we need to understand that. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, you can testify. You know, I set out, I pitched an article to you uh, a couple of years ago, which I said, I want to write up a list of everything that's wrong with the Internet. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that article turned into three articles. Uh, uh, and it just, it seemed to never end. It basically, I can't realize if I just tried to list every criticism or concern or worry that people were having, it was, that, it, that list could go on forever. I could spend the rest of yep. my life making. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, it's interesting to see some people starting to argue that the internet should never exist. <laughs> but right. uh I th I think I think um at least the three of us are at least somewhat optimistic that there are benefits <laughs> to the internet that we would prefer not to throw away. Exactly. Yeah. I will so. say this about uh, the internet panic, which is that it does it certainly has taken a lot of the heat off of television. People, <laughs> people, yeah. people, yeah, you see, you know, for, you know, for my whole growing up, everybody was pretty certain that television was destroying society. And now, you know, people brag about binge watching, you know, a whole year of a show over a weekend. You know, I said, that's a different world from the world I was in when I was much younger. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's an argument that, that, uh, TV is still worse than the internet in some ways, but yes, but you know, the moral panics come and go and, and, uh, you know, I've included the list of, of old moral panics in the past on tech terror where things like the waltz and chess were both at, at times considered part, uh, of, of, uh, causing great harm to the morals of the youth. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, think about how quaint the, um, PMRC seems right now. Yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> Tipper Gore was ahead of her time, I suppose. But I mean, <laughs> times have changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's always there's always going to be something that is that is the the root cause of all all evils in humanity. <laughs> and uh, whatever new is on the scene and, and popular with the kids uh, is usually the main target. Yeah. So I think uh, I mean I know we're sort of wrapping up, but interesting. There was you know there's a story in the Times in the New York Times today about. Um, ultra or an ultra orthodox meeting 
maybe in New York, focused on anti-vaccination, like an anti-vax rally of some sort. And, and the funny part of it, I mean, not, none of it's funny, but, but there was a funny part of it was, was, oh my God, they're getting their information through pamphlets. You know, and, and I, it was just, it was kind of entertaining to see that. It'd be like, now, now we're going to move to ban pamphlets. Yes. Well, obviously pamphlets are, are evil, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no check on pamphlets. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, guys, thanks to both of you for, well, I mean, you've both done a tremendous amount of work over, over many years on, on a variety of different things, but uh, thanks specifically for taking the time to, to join this podcast uh, and to each of you for putting together your, your new books, which everyone should check out. Um, and uh, I'm sure we will continue to talk about all these issues because they are not going away anytime soon. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Great to be here. This was fun. And uh, and thanks everyone for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week.